Um, so we've been on a series on foundations of our life in Christ. This is every fall we, we kind of start typically with a foundational series on walking out our lives as Christians. And we're going through kind of a three-part plan, which is <clears throat> being a disciple of Jesus, which we're focusing on us and the Lord, and then moving from there to being disciples together, where we'll talk about our, what does it mean to be a church family? Why are we even a church? What's the point? And then we'll talk about being disciples together who make other disciples, where we talk about moving outside our own lives, our own church, to try to reach those around us with the love of Jesus. Uh, and so, <clears throat> I started this series by reminding us of these foundational concepts of discipleship that are elucidated in places like Luke 9, where Jesus says, if anyone will be my disciple, let him take up his cross each day and follow me. <clears throat> and this concomitant promise that he gives in Matthew, for whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. And that we find that Jesus wants to give us life, but that life is found in giving ourselves to him and following him. And then we, we're, we're met on that journey, we're met with a great tension because as Jesus says, with man, this is impossible. That we find that our hearts, apart from his grace, don't want to follow him and can't follow him. But by God's grace, he meets us with mercy and power through the gospel and through the free gift of salvation in his son's work on the cross, dying for our sins. God forgives us of our sins and changes our hearts and makes it possible for us to do what's impossible apart from him, which is to follow him. Not perfectly, but truly. And so the Lord says, with man, this is impossible. But praise be to God, with God, all things are possible. <clears throat> and we spent some time talking about these beautiful words that the Lord intends to woo us with in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so we're met with another beautiful tension of our faith, which is that as we seek to take up our cross, die to ourselves each day and follow Jesus, the more we seek to really push into that meeting with Jesus, we find that he is kind. He is gentle. He is humble. He's not here to destroy us. He's not here to pound us into submission. He's not a harsh taskmaster. He's the greatest gentleman that's ever lived. And he means what he says, that he wants us to experience rest in following him. That his yoke really is to be easy and kind. It's another word for that word, easy. And his burden is to be light. And so last week, uh, we moved from that to starting to consider some of the habits <clears throat> of the Christian life that we walk out each day to help us take on that yoke and walk out that light burden. And, <clears throat> excuse me, I spent last week really talking, trying to build you a, a uh, a foundation for how not to think about spiritual disciplines and how to watch out for certain kinds of legalistic thinking. Well, today I want to kind of pivot from that, how not to think about spiritual disciplines to how do we think about 
them. And in particular, we're going to focus in today and next week on the two, perhaps the two most important spiritual practices, habits, the word of God and prayer to God, the word of God and prayer to God. <clears throat> in his book, called Deeper, Dane Ortland, um, he was the guy who wrote Gentle and Lowly, a book we've talked about a good amount at church. He has a chapter on prayer and on the word, and I just love the title of the chapter. His chapter title is Breathing. Breathing. In his little analogy here, he reflects that we inhale the word of God and that we exhale prayers to God. We inhale the word of God and we exhale prayers to God. That, that the word of God and prayers to God are supposed to be so close to us that they're like breathing, breathing. And I think that's a beautiful image. There's other images we'll talk about, but I just think that's a gorgeous idea. So we're gonna send, spend some time considering these uh, most important practices of the word and prayer. But I wanna offer some principles that I hope will help you build and nourish um, Again, your devotional life. I, <clears throat> I've been interested since we started this in, in just getting to the nooks and crannies of, hey, how does this work practically? And like, here's some tips on having your quiet time type of stuff. And I just feel along the way, like uh, this sense of God slowing me down and saying, hey, before we get to the tips, let's be careful about how we think about this whole practice, because there's a lot of good ways, there's a lot of bad ways to think about this. And the last thing I want to do is do what the Pharisees do, which is to tie you up with heavy burdens that people cannot bear to eclipse the cross and the grace of Christ with a list of duties that you have to perform. I want to be really careful to do that, to not do that. But, but I also want to be really careful not to ignore what the scriptures say about prayer and the word. So that's where we're going to go. We're going to move meta big picture into practical tips kind of stuff. Um, more of that next week. So I've, I've three points today. And uh, the first is this concerning spiritual disciplines, recognize Jesus and his apostles lived and called us to live lives of devotion to God in prayer, recognize Jesus and his apostles lived and called us to lives of devotion to God in prayer. One more time, because I'm not sure I said that right. <laughs> Recognize Jesus and his apostles lived and called us to lives of devotion to God in prayer. <clears throat> one of my favorite things that happens in scripture uh, happens in Mark 1. And you guys might have heard this uh, when I talked a little bit about this last summer. It, it, in Mark 1, you find this situation where you actually get to follow Jesus through a full 24-hour period. Like you get to be with Jesus in an actual day morning to morning. And the day starts with him in the morning at the synagogue teaching. And, and then he moves from that saying some really powerful things to casting out a demon from a poor tormented boy and giving him back to his dear dad. And then Jesus goes from there to Peter's house for a meal where he encounters Peter's mother-in-law who's sick with a fever and Jesus heals her. And then she gets up and makes them a meal and they have a, a good time together, hopefully until sundown. And then the evening starts just about the time where they want to prepare for winding down the day. <clears throat> Mark tells us that the whole town, he literally says, the whole town comes to Jesus for healing from demons. So it took some time for the synagogue excitement to travel through the whole little city 
And by the end of the day, the, everyone got in the word that this guy has power to expel demons and they've probably heard about some other healings. So everyone in the town comes and stands outside of Peter's mom-in-law's house and Jesus heals them. He casts out demons, he heals diseases, and this surely had to go on until late in the night. So this is what, 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 now that sounds pretty Jesus-ish. That sounds pretty typical for the life of our Savior. But what's really cool and, 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 and important and interesting about this is how the 24 hours ends. Because after all of this intense ministry, um, this is what the Son of God does. <clears throat> and rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went to a desolate place. And there he prayed. So after all this intense ministry, healing everybody, teaching in the morning, Jesus gets up before the crack of dawn and he goes to a place where nobody can find him and he can get alone and be quiet with his father and talk to him. And this word desolate place or lonely place comes up a lot in the scriptures related to Jesus and his disciples. And if you search through the gospels, you'll see many times where Jesus is saying no to the crush and the hurry and the intensity of people's needs. And he's going out to lonely places, sometimes taking his disciples, sometimes not, where they and he could be alone with God to reorient, to get nourishment, to get recalibrated. And throughout his ministry, Jesus is also uh, continuing to do this. Uh, Hold on, I I got lost in my notes for a second here. we see Jesus throughout his ministry talking to his father, not just in these lonely places, but even as he's ministering to people, he's praying. He talks to his father in the midst of teaching in Matthew 11. He'll, he's teaching one moment and then he starts praying. Then he goes back to teaching. In the midst of healing Lazarus and raising him from the dead in John 11, he takes time to pray in front of all those people. In the midst of handing out the bread and the juice, Jesus takes time to talk to his father again and give them the bread and the wine, thanking God for it. And of course, on the cross, the height of his ministry, he's crying out to his father several times, crying out in his abandonment and grief, crying out for our forgiveness and crying out to entrust himself to his father. So Jesus models prayer and then he also transfers that lifestyle of prayer to us in his own commands to us. Matthew 6 and 7, we're told, keep seeking Keep knocking, keep asking. He's talking about prayer to God. He uses these, <clears throat> he uses these uh, perfect verbs that offer this idea of continually at seeking. <clears throat> Excuse me. Continually knocking and continually co- um, coughing. <laughs> continually asking God for help, persevering through ongoing prayer. And he tells us also to go to the lonely places. He says several times in the, in the Beatitudes or the, the Sermon on the Mount to pray in secret because our Father sees in secret. And of course, this is a rejoinder about not being hypocrites and trying to get attention with your great prayers. But what he's really saying is have a prayer closet where you get with God alone and talk to him about your most important things. And of course, we're told explicitly to begin every day with the Lord's Prayer. In Luke 18, Jesus says, give us what? This day, our daily bread, implying this daily interchange with God. 
In Luke 18, one, Jesus says, uh, he goes into these long parables about perseverance in prayer. And he starts with this beautiful word. Uh, Luke says, Jesus took his disciples aside and told them to, quote, always pray and never give up. It's just beautiful encouragement to continue in this conversation with God all the time. And then this burden goes from Jesus to us, but it also comes through his apostles to us because of course they speak through the Holy Spirit with his voice. So we're told in Romans 12 to be constant in prayer. Peter tells us to let our prayers be fervent. First Thessalonians 5 says this famous phrase, to pray without ceasing, meaning that whatever we're doing, be in an attitude of looking to God. Whatever you're doing, wherever you are, Be aware that you're living before God, that you're living with God, that you're dependent on God, that you're dearly loved by God, and that he is there to help you at all times. That's really what praying without ceasing means. It doesn't mean I don't drive my car or go to work or mow the lawn. It means that I am never far from having a heart attitude that says, Lord, I'm before you. I'm living before you. Help me live for you. I'm dependent on you. I need you. I need you. I need you. Peter tells us to be sober-minded. And when I I thought about the commandment in 1 Peter, I'd think, oh, Peter wants us to be sober-minded so we can live uh, soberly, so we can live good lives. He says, no, be sober-minded so that you can pray clearly, so that you can think about life right and bring your prayers clearly. Uh, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 7, he, he tells husbands to, or 1 Peter tells husbands to live graciously and understanding with their lives. He doesn't say just so that your marriage will be good. He says so that your prayer life won't be hindered. It won't be blocked. So there, there's all these little clues again and again through the New Testament that prayer is to be saturating our lives. So <clears throat> we've got prayer. That's the inhaling what about the, or that's the, that's the exhaling. What about the inhaling that Orland poetically puts it, this inhaling of God's word? So the second point I have today is this, that we want to recognize that Jesus and his apostles lived and, com- and commanded and call us to lives of devotion to God. The second slide. Next one. Yeah, there we go. Thank you, Logan. Recognize Jesus and his apostles lived and call us to lives of devotion to God through his word. Recognize Jesus and the apostles lived and commanded us, called us to lives of devotion to God through his word. As we trace Jesus through the gospels, what you can't miss if you're following him somewhat carefully is that he was saturated in his mind with the word of God. And he was everywhere using and quoting scripture. It was his foundation for so much of what he said and so much of what he commanded. The word of God was central to our savior's life from the very beginning to the very end. At the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus is confronted with a crisis. Just like Adam in the beginning of their lives, were confronted with a crisis. God had allowed Satan to accuse God to their hearts and to take God's word and twist God's word and woo them away from God with that. And they fell and our whole race fell. And when Jesus begins his life in public, before he begins his life in public ministry, God takes him into the desert a desert that used to be Eden. 
I'm not necessarily saying it's the same place, but I, I, I think we can see that the desert was not what God intended for us. It was a garden. But now it's become a desert, and God takes Jesus out to that desert. And just like Adam and Eve had to face Satan and his lies about God, Jesus is made to face Satan and his lies about God. And Satan takes God's words and he twists their meaning just like he did with Adam and Eve. But Jesus doesn't fail the test this time. He knows God's heart. He knows God's character. And so he knows God's word. And he stands up to Satan. And he didn't use lightning bolts. There's a uh, super Bible story book that my kids have watched um, made by the, I think it's made by the 700 Club folks. And it, it's like, it's all incredible animation. But when they go to like spiritual warfare stuff, it's like Star Wars. They're all, the angels are using lightning bolts and the demons have big shields with swords and they get into these physical confrontations. That's, I don't think that's what happens in heavenly places. I think that the battles are battles over truth. I think those are the deepest battles in our lives are the battles over truth. Like what is really true? What's not true? What should we really give our hearts to? What can we really trust? I think that's the ultimate reality of, of invisible battles. So Jesus stands up. He doesn't use lightning bolts or spells. He uses God's word. Oh, by the way, I'm not trying to um, make fun of the 700 Club or bless the 700 Club to you guys. I just, I, I, another time, if you want to talk about the 700 Club, um, just never know when something's going to get out of my mouth and suddenly it's like, oh, Albert loves the 700 Club. Or Albert hates Pat Roberts. But I'm not. So let me try to draw us back. Not commenting on that. But my point is, God didn't use lightning bolts. He used truth. He used truth. He used truth. In fact, he didn't eat for 40 days so that he could say with integrity to Satan, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word from the mouth of God. The word of God was precious to Jesus and he indicated that it was food as precious to us as the next meal you're going to have today. And you watch him through his ministry with his disciples and with the Pharisees. And again and again and again, Jesus will be saying things like, have you not read? You don't understand the scriptures. Don't you understand what God said or for it is written? He says these things again and again. Jesus said the scriptures cannot be broken. He said they can't be broken. He was alluding to the purity of God's word and to its integrity. He believed in the uniquely supernatural source and authority of your Bible. He believed it was God's very word. When Jesus prayed for his disciples on the last night before the cross, he asked God to sanctify them. He wanted them to be set apart, to, protect, to be protected. And he said this, sanctify them in truth. And then he added, your word is truth. Your word is truth. How are my disciples going to be grown? How are they going to be kept safe? How are they going to flourish? Will God sanctify them through the truth? Your word is truth. And although Jesus had the Jewish scriptures, Jesus' words as God the Son for us have become God's very words now. And when Jesus sends the apostles into the world, 
when Jesus sent the apostles into the world to go make disciples, he prioritizes one ongoing task. Yes, he says baptize. That happens once. Yes, he says go. But what does he want them to do? He says, teach them, all these disciples, to obey all that I have commanded. In this, Jesus elevates his word, not just as God's word, which he does, but he elevates, he elevates the word as that which was to be the focus of making and maturing disciples for all of church history. That God's word was to be the central tool to raise disciples. And, and of course, not just hearing it, but doing it, including love one another and share with the poor and give your life. So God's word doesn't just say, read the word and you're done. No, it, it sends us somewhere. It calls us to something. It shapes us. It comforts us. It corrects us. It washes us. It nourishes us. But it's God's words. It's God's words. All other words, secondary to it should be supportive of it. Paul commanded us, the, all the churches, uh, I'm sorry, the, my transition here is that Jesus then transferred this burden to the apostles. And we see this, that not only does Jesus want us and tre treasuring God's word, but the apostles did. Of course, they are speaking through the Holy Spirit for Jesus. We first see this clearly in John 17. Jesus prays for all of those in the future who will believe. Now, in that point in John 17, he prays for all people everywhere throughout history who will believe. But then he says this, he says, who will believe in me because of their message. Their message. Jesus gave them the truth about him. And he said, everyone else for all of church history is going to find me and live in me and thrive in me because of the message of these apostles that I'm giving. That's why we have a Bible that's done. That's why we don't have modern day apostles. Jesus gave his message once and for all while he was alive and through the Holy Spirit as they continued walking with him to these people who wrote the New Testament. And that's why we build on that message. We don't start new messages. We don't build new Bible. We, we build on that message. That's our soil and our boundary. And Paul commands us in Colossians 3 to let this message about Jesus so fill us that we'd actually be able to teach each other. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you, teaching each other, admonishing each other, singing to each other, singing God's word to one another. In the book of Hebrews, the author is worried about these believers and he says in Hebrews 2, 1 through 4, he says, pay close attention to the message about Jesus. He says, drifting away from the truth is a danger for us. And it's true. It, it, it comes naturally from, to us. We don't have to work at drifting. It, it happens. But our spiritual prosperity, the Hebrews author says, comes from staying close to the message about Jesus. So those are the, the two, I think, most important spiritual habits, spiritual sources of help for us in our walk with God. Prayer in the word, prayer in the word. There are others, there are other spiritual habits and practices that are important. Fasting and evangelism and giving and, and, and the word of God commends those things to us. That's how we learn about those things, of course. 
but, but this is important. This is our spiritual breathing. Spiritual breathing is taking God in in his word and breathing out to him in prayer. But for everybody, this begs the question, because maybe you're all, I'm sure some of you are, are right now like, oh, I'm terrible at this. I come to the Bible, it feels like a dead locked door. Or here we go again, Church of the Holy Quiet Times. I mean, I feel that way sometimes as I think about these kinds of sermons. I feel like, um, we can be reductionistic about the Christian life and boil everything down to, hey, if you've had your quiet time, you're a good Christian. You know, and, and that's not at all what I want to do is to burden you or, or reduce everything down to this. But the word of God commends these things to us. So I don't want to ignore it either. I don't want to pretend like it's not there. I want to ask you to think about what should it look like in my life? And we can think about it this week and next week because it's going to be different for each of us. It's not going to be the same. And I'll talk about that in a second. Um, In fact, I'm going to talk about that right now (laughs) because that's my third point. Um, Recognize the goal. This is my last point. Recognize the goal to know and love God and thereby glorify him. And I think this is so important and crucial and it's also freeing. It's also freeing. The goal isn't to have 45 minutes of time in the word at 6 a.m. The goal isn't to have seven quiet times a week and check off a box. The goal is to know and love God and thereby through knowing him and loving him, glorify him. The goal isn't to feel great satisfaction because I did so good or to feel hopeless despair because I'm terrible at getting in the word. One of the interesting and super important things about prayer and God's word in the New Testament is that there is no set formula for Bible intake and prayer exhaling. There's no specific formula for how to go about it. There are broad principles. We've just talked about a lot of them. We'll talk about more. But there's nothing regulated like read at this time for this long using these books. And if you don't, you're a bad Christian. There isn't. There are some, there are some pretty clear hints about some stuff but there's nothing formulatic and structured assigned to every Christian. And I think this reality is rooted in a couple of really crucial realities. And the first thing is, is that God works with his kids like you who are parents work with your kids in different ways. All of you guys have, who have kids know how different your kids are. And all of you guys who have been in, well, we've all been in families, many of us with brothers and sisters, we recognize how different we are. God doesn't work with his kids the same way. There are broad principles in parenting. You don't apply them uniformly to every child. We all have varying degrees. We, We really do. We all have varying degrees of intelligence, of personality, of temperament, Some of us are more philosophical and we take a long time to mull over truth. I do not do good at fast things. You can give me one verse and I can write a, you know, I can write a three hour sermon on one verse. (laughs) So, but some of us are 
like my wife. She's more pragmatic. She can move through data and input much quicker than I can. We're just different. And we're also in different places, right? Some of us have young children. We can't do the Martin Luther. I, I, I had so much to do that day that I prayed three hours instead of two. Some of us will find that really impossible to live and sleep. And, and some of us are older. We might have more space in our lives. Some of us are prone to discouragement and we need strong influxes of encouragement. Some of us like Martin Luther, like Charles Spurgeon, go through long seasons and spells of depression. And, and, and that really should speak to and inform the diet that we're taking in, in the word of God. It might not be a good idea if you're prone to depression to spend all your time in certain prophets that are bringing God's condemnation on the people of Israel. And it might be important, I should say this too, that a lot of times scripture itself is very hard to process without help from other people, from really good writers and authors who've worked through things in scripture that are difficult to do. And God knows all this. So in relating to God in this fundamental and intimate area of prayer and his word, it makes sense that a father with different children in different places would not give a one size fits all approach. So he doesn't. Our needs, our capacities will vary. <clears throat> and I think another reason why, why God doesn't need to put a formula in his word about quiet times and devotions is that Prayer and God's word are a means. They're not an end. Prayer and God's word are a means. They're not an end. And this is under my third point here. It's kind of elaborating on that. We have to fight the box check mentality where we're satisfied if we finish our chapter and say our standard prayer and slowly begin to shift our hope into that as opposed to Jesus his love for us, his blood for us, and him being with us all day long. It's kind of a grown-up-y thing. It's kind of a grown-up-y thing to be able to pick up the good habit of Bible reading and prayer without dropping the more crucial reality that Jesus is our only hope, <laughs> that Jesus is our only righteousness, not our quiet times. And a lot of times in, in my life, I, I've gotten into my place where, um, because of my own insecurities, where, where if I haven't had my quiet time, it's almost like I drank 78 cups of coffee. You know, I'm just nervous all day long, extra looking over my shoulder, my back, you know, because I didn't have my quiet time. And I've actually gone through seasons where I've just stopped reading the Bible for a season like that. I've just stopped my, my regular quiet times because it really had become my hope instead of Jesus. I'm not saying that's what you necessarily need to do. I'm saying this can be complicated. We can get really, for those of us who feel good about this, we, we can get really satisfied with our quiet time life. I mean, I, I think there have been seasons in my life where and maybe it's still present where my practice of spiritual disciplines becomes bigger than like how I'm doing caring about the poor, how I'm doing caring about my church, my church family, my family. So we, we, we want to remember that spiritual disciplines like prayer and Bible reading 
like we said last week, the goal is to know Christ, not impress him. The goal is to know Christ, not impress him. We're, we're raising the sail of our little boat to position the little vessel of our soul. This is what Bible reading and prayer are. We're raising the sail of our little boat to be caught by the wind of the Holy Spirit so he can press us along. It's a means to an end. We want to be connected by the Holy Spirit through prayer and the word to God. We want to meet with God. That's why we pray. That's why we, we read his word. And of course, we want to bless other people with our lives. George Mueller came to this singular conception of why he should read the Bible and pray when he was 37 years old. You guys have heard me talk about George Mueller. Some of you guys know about him. Um, I've talked about him a lot, so some of this might be redundant. But, but George Mueller was a, a believer in the 1800s who was incredibly gifted with the gift of faith. He, for much of his life, he'd grow up poor every morning, and by the end of the day, God would fulfill the needs he had for his family through gifts. And he never asked for money. He just prayed to God for money. And he didn't just live that way for himself. He started orphanages and churches that helped tens of thousands of kids. And his whole goal in doing that was to glorify God by continually bringing God's secret power uh, to visibility before the people around him. He, so in, in other words, George Mueller was so convinced that God was a dead idea in his community, in his city, in England, that, that people, they were Christian by culture, but they had given up on the idea that God was really a living God that he was real, that he could really help them. And in beautiful compassion for people who he saw weary and overworked and wiped out, he came up with this idea. I am going to, to start orphanages <laughs> and churches, and I'm not going to ask anybody for money. I'm just going to pray to God, and then God's going to answer, and then these orphanages are going to get built. And these churches are going to get built and these relief organizations are going to get built. And then when people ask me, I can just say, God did it. God did it. I wake up every day poor. By dinner time, I'm fed and I'm ready to go to bed. It's just an amazing life he lived and, and God did do it. And he's very, very, by God's grace, he's a very, very famous historical figure in the Christian life. Um, but he had this lightning bolt light bulb moment when he was 37 about prayer and the word. And he said this, while I was staying at Nailsworth, it pleased the Lord to teach me a truth. Nailsworth is someplace in England. He was recovering, I think from something. It pleased the Lord to teach me a truth, irrespective of human instrumentality. As far as I know, the benefit of which I have not lost though now more than 40 years have since passed away. The point is this, I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. I'm going to say that last thing again, that last sentence again. The point is this, I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about was not how much I might serve the Lord, how I might glorify the Lord, 
but how I might get my soul into a happy state and how my inner man might be nourished. For I might seek to set the truth before the unconverted. I might seek to benefit believers. I might seek to relieve the distressed. I might in other ways seek to behave myself as it becomes a child of God in this world. And yet not being happy in the Lord and not being nourished and strengthened in my inner man day by day, all this might not be attended to in a right spirit. We're going to talk about this a little bit later. Let me just say as a qualifier here, it's not possible for many of us to every day be happy in the Lord because of stuff. So again, just please, my point is that don't walk away here thinking, man, if I don't have a really good quiet time every day and feel really connected to God and emotionally on a high, I'm sinning. I'm falling short of the George Mueller status. There's a lot of stuff that God takes us through seasons of great difficulty and senses of estrangement from him that aren't true, but are experienced in our emotions. My point is he hasn't really left us, but we can feel that way. Just read the Psalms if you don't believe me. It feels like every other Psalm is, God, where are you? Why have you left me? Where will you? When will you come to me? Why do you hide your face from me? But Mueller was right though about what we should hope for and what we should pursue and what we should seek. He was right about the prize. The prize is joy in God. A weary and parched soul quenched. A heart broken, crushed, brittle, helped. And this is the great means by which God is glorified in our lives. Jesus meant it when he said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. But how can we love someone if we're not convinced, at least imperfectly, but somewhat that they love us. How can we love someone if they are a dead wall to us? How can we love someone if our perspective is that they're a harsh taskmaster that we have to fear and we have to live in slavish servitude for all the time? That's not what God wants for us. And that's not where we're going to finish even if that's where we are or that's where we have been. He's committed to that, that that's not where we're going to finish. He's committed that we're going to finish this way. When he said, I have said these things to you, this is on the night before he was crucified, so that my joy will be in you and your joy will be complete, mature, fulfilled, perfected. It doesn't happen in this life, but that's where he's taking us. Joy in him perfected. That's his goal for us. 
And so that should be central to our goal when we pray, when we meet with him, when we study in, in, in him. Lord, I, I want to be happy in you. I want to know you. And isn't that what David's saying when he's saying, where have you gone? Why are you hiding your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have turmoil in my soul? He's saying, I wasn't made to live this way. Like I, I'm supposed to be full of you. I'm supposed to be saturated with hope and joy, but I am not. So what is going on, God? Do you know who gave David that song to write? The Holy Spirit did. God knew that would be our experience. And he wanted us to know that so much that he wrote a huge book called the Psalms so that we could know that he knows that we feel estranged from him. He knows that we feel like his face is hidden from us. He knows that we feel condemned by our sin. He knows that we feel hopeless because people are attacking us or bullying us. He knows that we feel at the end of our rope because our biochemistry is so junked up. He knows. So he spent a long time giving us 150 songs about it called the Psalms. We don't sing many of that stuff here on a Sunday morning. I feel like I'm always feeling apologetic about that because I wish, I wish we did. I wish we had more songs like that. Our dear sister Sandra McCracken writes a few. But Could you imagine going to like a big, you know, passion conference and the big worship team's up there and they're like, Turn your face away from me so I can be happy again. Your hand is heavy upon me. My strength is sapped out because of your wrath. We don't, you know. But some of us, including me, might feel more comfortable singing some of that stuff sometimes because it feels much more like my experience sometimes. So, my point is that as we move on to these practical considerations, we want to keep that goal center that God wants for us to have joy in him. He wants for us to be full of him. He wants us to know him and love him because we're able to perceive his love for us. And that can be very difficult. That can take years, but that is what he is after. And I think John Piper gets it right. He says, God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. I love that. He's most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. He really does want to convince us of his love for us. And he's willing to do whatever it takes to do that as he's shown on the cross. And he's willing to keep working with us for however many years and millennia in eternity it takes to do that. We're on a quest for joy. The greatest joy there is, is, is in the universe is found in knowing our creator and being happy in him. That's what we're made for. So let's keep that in mind as we get more into the weeds and talk about tips <laughs> in, in the next message.